Well, go ahead and turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, we are going to be reading from the parable that is very well known. It's the parable of what most people call the Good Samaritan, but what I'm calling the Loving Samaritan, really. So let's let's read the, the parable of the Loving Samaritan today. And hopefully we'll be able to read it with fresh eyes, seeing what, what Jesus had for them in that day, then applying it to our hearts today as well. So let's read God's holy, inspired word together. This is God's word. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with with all your heart and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side, But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, And gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said to him, The one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you that when you gave us your son, he came to us where we are. He came to meet us in our deficiencies. He came to meet us in our weaknesses. He came to redeem us from our lack of love. Thank you, Jesus, that when you told parables, you didn't tell parables that we couldn't relate to, but you told parables that really cut us to the core of who we are. Jesus, thank you for this parable. Thank you for this interaction that that you've shared with us in your holy word so that we might see you, so we might see our need for you. And God, so that we might turn to you and love other people because of the love that you've shown us. Father, I pray that you would Empower me as I preach by your Holy Spirit. Would you empower everyone who is sitting here to hear by your Holy Spirit? God, give us grace this morning through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Well, back when I was uh, a student in, in college, I was really enamored with lots of philosophers and was really into guys like Sartre and, and Rousseau and people like that who really are relatively unrelatable to real life. But one of those guys who I was really into was a guy named Rousseau or Jean-Jacques Rousseau. He was this Swiss philosopher and um, he, he wrote this famous novel called Emile, or really the subtitle was, was On Education. And it was this great treatise about the importance of educating your children. And it was considered groundbreaking in the, in the late 1700s. It was probably his most important work. And in that book, he talks about being opposed to strict authoritarian parenting and caring for your children, how children need the freedom to be able to learn and to grow and to experience and to explore things under the loving care of the father who is there answering the children's questions. And the father is really a central figure in the education of his children, how important that is. And it really helped revolutionize education as we know it today. And a lot of the principles that modern education employs really come from guys like Rousseau. The book helped inspire a new era in education. It was maybe the start of an education revolution, if you want to put it that way. The, the irony, though, was that Rousseau, he fathered five children all out of wedlock. After every child was born, immediately he pressured the mother to put them into an orphanage. This man who championed being a father who would, who would foster education and help uh, steer children in the way they should go and create an environment and a culture of learning, actually with all five of his children, immediately had them put in an orphanage. Every one of his children actually ended up not only not getting an education at all because of him, but dying in an underfunded orphanage while he enjoyed relative prosperity. Later on in his biography, he made excuses that, well, he was afraid that he wouldn't be able to educate them himself. This champion of education and parenting was a lousy parent and an awful educator. You know, it, it's not rare when so many great thinkers or so-called intellectuals, they preach one message and live differently. But I don't know that it's really constrained just intellectuals, but it, it's common to people who preach one thing and fail to live an, uh, that way. There was a contemporary of his, a man named Voltaire. He was the champion of freedom. He once actually made a, a quote that was, he stole from his assistant, it, it later turns out, but he says, I may disagree with what you say, but I'll defend to the death your right to say it. The problem is, he hated Rousseau so much that when Rousseau came out with another one of his books, Voltaire posed as a Christian, and Voltaire, by the way, was an anti-theist, he was an anti-Christian, but he posed as a Christian, and he wrote letters to um, the, the, the Board of Education, he wrote letters to the, the town and to the leaders there, trying to get Rousseau's book banned and burned. This champion of freedom actually ended up getting Rousseau put in jail, covertly lying about it. 
give you another intellectual, a guy named Karl Marx. He was supposedly the champion of the underclass, the working class man, and he was the champion of the proletariat, the working class, and he formed really the beginnings of what would become the Communist Party. Supposedly he was for the common man, for the poor man, for the person who was downtrodden. The only problem is he never actually befriended or knew any working class person. The shocking thing if you read about somebody who was supposedly so committed to the ideals of communism was that he never did anything on his own to actually help any of the working class. And it was said that he actually never set foot in a factory or a mill or any of the places he talked about helping support. In reality, the only working class person he really had any kind of relationship was not a good one. It was his wife's maid who he had an affair with and had an illegitimate child with. And the only potential relationship he could have had with the working class, supposedly helping the poor, really, he ended up saying, refusing to even meet his own son. Doesn't end with that, though. There are so many other examples in life of people who preach and proclaim one thing and live another. There's, in our modern times, there is... John Lennon of the Beatles, he had the song, All You Need Is Love, and it turns out in his biography later, his ex-wife and then Yoko Ono both said that he was actually a really unloving, very angry, bitter man. A guy who actually advocated for peace and once sat up in his bed for months trying to, to bring about peace somehow, and it obviously didn't work. He covertly was giving money to fund the IRA, the Irish Republican Army, which was a terrorist group. But before we become too up in arms and think, well, of course, how could all these intellectuals do that? We have to think for a second, isn't that really endemic to all of humanity? Don't, don't we all, doesn't all of humanity struggle to practice what we preach? Don't, don't, don't we fundamentally have a hard time living out what we say we believe? Sometimes the loudest proclaimers of ideology are in fact the ones who betray their ideology with the way that they live. It reveals something, doesn't it? It reveals that the effectiveness of a person's philosophy, or at least how much they really embrace it, it's seen in how a person actually lives. And that's how the people would have been challenged as they heard this parable. They would have scoffed at the priest. Well, how could this great priest who, who really is a a man who's supposed to lead God's people, how could he not care? How could this Levite who's supposed to lead people in worship, how could he not care? It's much harder to actually love somebody else than it is to claim that we do. But you see, the proof of what someone claims to believe is really seen in how we live, isn't it? In our account in Luke here, uh, there's a scholar, or it says a lawyer, who's really a scholar of religious law. So a lawyer in regards to um, the, the Old Testament laws. He comes up to Jesus, but he doesn't come up to Jesus humbly. He comes up to Jesus and says he tries to test him. He, he tries to put Jesus to the test. And that's always a dangerous thing in the Gospels when people try to test Jesus He's trying to poke holes in Jesus' teaching, trying to show how he, what he believes and his ideals are actually superior to Jesus' ideas. And what happens is Jesus' response reveals what the man truly believes. Not just what he has an education in, not just what his role is, not just what he teaches, but what he actually believes by how he lives. 
The man would have been versed in the Holy Scriptures. He would have, his whole profession would have been built around the law that God gave through Moses to God's people. And the law was the means by which God gave so that people might relate to God. But the question is, we have to ask, is this man's heart really been changed by the law, by God's merciful gift of the law? He probably would have worn, his whole outfit would have been affected by his profession. And in that day, they, they used to wear something called phylacteries and these little boxes with little teeny rolled up scrolls of scripture. And they would keep them on their wrists and on the front of their forehead. And so they would walk around, as absurd as it sounds, with a box on their forehead that has a phylactery. These teachers of the law, these lawyers, and they often be identified externally and they'd have special robes. And, and they'd have these boxes on their wrists as well so that everyone they meet and everybody they talk to would know that they are really diligent in keeping the law before them. But Jesus knew the lawyer was testing him, and so he turns things back around on the lawyer who was asking him this question, and he says, well, what do you think the law says? Now, ironically, the, the lawyer's answer is in, is in chapter 6 of Deuteronomy, and Earlier in chapter 6 of Deuteronomy, there's, there's a commandment that, that's given, and it's, it's that you should not put the Lord your God to the test. But I guess he must have missed that one because he was putting Jesus to the test. Now, Jesus says, well, what do you think? How do you interpret? You, you know the law. What do you think? How, what, how would you apply to the law when you say, who, who is my, who's my neighbor? How, how do you love God? And so in Deuteronomy 6, 4, he, he quotes from the, the famous Shema, something that uh, a good lawyer would have every day gotten up and proclaimed every morning. Verses 4 and 5 of Deuteronomy 6, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. That would have been at the forefront of their thinking. Now, this lawyer would have also known something that Jesus had already done throughout his ministry up until this point. Jesus had associated loving the Lord your God with loving your neighbor from Leviticus. And so he puts those two things together. Obviously, this lawyer knew that, and he was wrestling with Jesus' teaching. And so the lawyer gives the answer that Jesus would have taught. He was trying to get out of get out of the answer. And he says, well, I love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. And then he adds, with all your mind, which, which basically means with all that you are, with every part of all that you are. And then he adds what Jesus is at it, and love your neighbor as yourself, because he, maybe he, he'd been convicted by that. Maybe he'd been thinking about that. Or maybe he just understood the law that well, that he knew that the first four of the Ten Commandments had to do with loving God, and the latter six commandments of the Ten Commandments have everything to do with loving your neighbor. So he, he knows intellectually, he knows theologically the right answers. And, and Jesus knew, though, that he was struggling to live it because Jesus says, well, you've answered correctly. He says, do this and you'll live. And at first you might think, well, what is Jesus saying? He's saying that if we keep the law, if you just love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and your neighbors yourself, that then that's how we'll have eternal life? In one sense, yes, but also no, because Jesus knew that it's impossible to keep this commandment on our own. So what Jesus is doing is he's provoking a man and says, fine, if you can really do that, you'll have eternal life. Hoping, really, probably, that the man would respond humbly, but he, he doesn't. 
question is, is tension there? Will the man who knows the law, will he see his own desperate inability to keep the law? Will he turn to Jesus, if Jesus is really a good teacher, and say, would you help me know how can I keep the law? How can I love God? How can I love my neighbor? But instead of that, what we see, both from this man's interactions with Jesus, from the lawyer, and then also from the first part of the parable, is we see a principle that Jesus seems to be driving home. We see it in the man, and we see it in the first part of the parable. And it's that our religion can get in the way of loving God by loving people. Now, that sounds controversial. Religion itself is not bad. If you mean by religion what we believe and what we practice, what what we pursue, then our beliefs about God can be a good thing. But if religion is just mere externalities, if it's a formal thing, if it's, if it's only about what we know and it doesn't affect our hearts, then it will get in the way of us actually loving God. Maybe you're raised in a Christian home. Sometimes it can actually be a challenge to, to know what it means to love God personally because you're raised in an environment where you know what to say, you know how to act, you know how to behave. That was me. You, you know, you know that's external. Or you think that you have to be perfect to be a Christian and you, and you can often, we can miss the point that no, it's about a heart relationship with God. You see, this man, he's not looking to Jesus for help. He's trying to justify, the passage tells us. He's trying to appear righteous. And don't we often do that? Don't we often come to Jesus and saying, well, you know, Jesus, how do I, how do I get eternal life? And, and, and then we can try to justify ourselves in, in how we behave towards other people. We can fool ourselves to thinking we're nice people because we're nice to the people who look like us or act like us or we're, we're nice to the people who are easy to care for. But this man then asks a question in response to Jesus, and he says, well, then, Jesus, who, who is my neighbor? And it's, it's not that he really wanted to know because the Scripture tells us that he was seeking to justify the fact of his own righteousness. He was trying to say, well, well, Jesus, you certainly mean the neighbor is the people of Israel, the people in the covenant community, the people who are easier to love, the people who I like, the people who I get along with. That must be my neighbor, But Jesus tries to show the self-righteous man that he's not really righteous at all. You know, sometimes I can justify my anger by saying, well, it's the other person that makes me angry. Or maybe I can justify my behavior by saying, you know, the, the person who we've offended deserved it because of their behavior. Maybe we treat people different of a different ethnicity with suspicion because we think that Everybody else in that majority has earned that kind of treatment. Well, Jesus tells this parable, and it's meant to cut to the heart of the matter. And if you read it with not the, as we've been talking about over the last few weeks, with not a flannel graph view of Christianity, there's not this soft, fuzzy, and warm view. If you read it how Jesus' original hearers heard it, it's, it's a parable that cuts deep. Even though today it's, it's one of the most positive messages that is communicated throughout the world and supposedly in America we love the idea of the good Samaritan right there's even good Samaritan laws in in over 30 states protecting people who care for people in need but I would say when it comes to actually doing it sometimes we are far from the mark 
Well, Jesus, he sets this parable on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It was only about an 18-mile-long road, but it was, it was fraught with peril. Um, it was often called the way of blood or the ascent of blood. And, and they would say they went down to Jericho, even though Jericho is northeast, because from Jerusalem, it was like an elevation of about 2,500 feet above sea level, they would descend to about 800 feet below sea level down to Jericho. And so um, as they went down, the climate changed, and there was a desert, and robbers would often hide in the desert and in the caves, and they would come out and they would steal from people on this path. And this path was a treacherous place. You know, for a time, I lived in northern Virginia, right outside of Washington, D.C., about 12 miles outside of Washington, D.C. And there's a section of Washington, D.C. That, that everybody knew not to go to. You know, sometimes the nation's capital gets a bad reputation of being this awful place to go. But really, it's just really only this one little section of town that everybody who lives in that area knows not to go to. You know, don't go to Southeast. Don't go to Anacostia. If you're, if you're, if you're on the way to D.C., don't cut down Southeast Capitol Street. Don't go through, through Garfield Heights. You know, that's where the murder, the crime rate is four times what it is the rest of the city. You know, Jesus was telling that this, this parable in the nation's capital. He might have talked about somebody driving down Congress Heights or going off, getting off the metro stop there and getting beaten up. Maybe locally for us, people in town, you might not realize it, but I was just reading a stat that shocked me. It says that um, there is a neighborhood in Greenville, actually, that's in the top 25 most violent neighborhoods in the whole U.S., I didn't know that. Our peaceful little nice town, right? Wood, it's a Woodside ranks as number eight above Detroit, by the way. Number eight on a list of the top 25 most dangerous neighborhoods in the whole United States. There's 86 violent crimes per thousand people every year in just that little neighborhood of Woodside. So maybe if the, if the parable was told here, you might, might be talking about going down Pendleton Road near Woodlawn Avenue. Maybe a couple of our realtors know what that area is and know where not to buy homes if you, if you want to be safer. But in any case, this, this parable is set in a commonly known place where there would have been danger going from Jerusalem down to Jericho. But a lot of people would have commuted between those two places because um, often people serving in the temple were from Jericho and they would commute and go back and forth. But in the parable, some really bad guys, they jumped this man and they robbed him. They didn't just rob him, though. They were malicious. They stripped him and they beat him. And they left him, it says, half dead. I don't know if you've ever come across anybody who's been beaten that badly. But it's an awful sight. Often they're unrecognizable. The facial features are so swollen. And that's the kind of picture here. It's this violent scene that the people in that day are imagining. And then Jesus throws them this, this first twist in the story that maybe they would have liked because sometimes, like us, we can like the downfall of a person who lives differently than they say they do. So Jesus throws them a little bit of a twist in the story and he says, and by chance, you know, Jesus who's sovereign over all, talking about chance, there's a little bit of irony there, we won't go into that, but he says, by chance, a priest comes along. And everybody's thinking, okay, a priest, right? Who, what, what does a priest do? A priest is the one who, who mediates God's presence to the people. A, pe a priest is the one who, who delivers 
the sacrifices to the holy of holies who, who mediates atonement from God to the people who actually is an extension of the mercy of God and embodies that in his very role. And so this person who embodies mercy in his role comes by the Samaritan, I mean, comes by this man who is beaten up. But it, it says something here. It says he, he walked right by he sees this man, but doesn't go and check on him. He walks by. Now, he doesn't just walk by. He crosses the street to go to the other side. He doesn't even want to get near the guy. This was the, one of the most holy class, the elite, the people who were not only the intellectual leaders, but had political and social clout. The ones who were supposed to set the example for all of Israel and to lead people towards godliness. There would have been an expectation that not only would he know how he's supposed to live, but he would teach other people how to be godly as well. You know, maybe today for us, you, you might think of a, of a pastor or maybe, maybe you, you, you hold in high esteem guys like John Piper or D.A. Carson or Tim Keller or whoever, or James White, or guys that you think are wonderful preachers of the Bible. And so it would be shocking if you find that one of those guys and all they teach and how sound their doctrine is if they didn't actually try to live that way. Well, that's the effect that Jesus is going for. And he says, this priest comes along by chance. And he's probably commuting back from his duties in Jerusalem to Jericho. And he goes by the other side. We don't know what he thought. Maybe he was concerned for his own safety. You know, he was in a bad hood. Maybe he thought the robbers might be still around. He wouldn't get robbed too. Maybe he thought the man was, was dead. And, and there was a law that says you shouldn't touch anyone who's dead or you could become unclean. But whatever he thought, he didn't have the decency to go and check on the man. And instead, he goes to the other side. He's not moved with any of the mercy that he's supposed to mediate from God to the people. He doesn't extend to this man. But he's not the only one. It says that the Levite, and, and the Levite for us, we might not know what a Levite is, but a Levite was a person who served in, in the temple or the equivalent as he served in the church. It was a worship leader. He was the one who, who served in the Sunday services. And you have this, this Levite who was the one who's supposed to be all about worshiping God and helping the people worship God and serving in their Saturday services and making a way so people could come and encounter God. And this Levite crosses to the other side. Maybe the equivalent today would be an elder or a deacon in the church or um, someone in a prominent role, maybe our worship leader. And that would be a little shocking to them. Don't they know? Shouldn't they live differently? You know, maybe their concern was with whether or not they're going to be unclean, but... They were equally unconcerned with all the commandments that talk about helping people in need and having compassion on the lowly, caring for someone who is wounded. And so we, we see here these, this middle and upper tiers, this religious establishment, people who should have and did know better, people who should have been modeling godly behavior, we see that they decide to pass by on the other side. And what we're seeing is this mere religion, this external adherence to the law, it keeps them 
gets in the way of them loving God. You know, the law commanded to help somebody in need, but instead, their ceremonial purity, their religion, was what drove them away from the man. Maybe they didn't want the inconvenience. Maybe, maybe that was it. Maybe they didn't want the inconvenience of, of, not having, of having to undergo the rite of purification for a week. You know, it's messy. Maybe that's what they're concerned about. This guy looks like he's messed up. He's messy. He's bloody. He's dirty. I don't want to deal with that. I got my robe, my priestly robes on still. I'm really clean. I'm going to get dirty. But you know, loving people, it's inconvenient. It's messy, isn't it? It gets you dirty sometimes. They might be confused that, you know, may, maybe if we associate this man, we're going to be seen as unclean. Maybe they were concerned about their reputation. Whatever it was, I think there, there's a point here that Jesus is trying to tell to the man, the religious lawyer who's asking the question self-righteously in the first place, and he kind of is getting this across that your religion is getting, your mere religion, your mere external keeping of law, it's keeping you from loving God. If your life becomes about mere religion and you lose an awareness of the mercy and compassion of God towards you personally, you can grow dull. You can no longer be compassionate. If you just get in the routine of being a Christian and you profess to have Jesus indwelling you and living with, inside of you and being with you always, if you profess to have Jesus as Lord and yet you're just going through the motion, living this routine, beware, you can become dull and lose the very compassion that you've received. You can lose a sense of that and, and fail to share that with other people. You can, you can fail to love God. There's a danger here, not just for them, but for us. It's a danger in, in my profession as a pastor by becoming so caught up in, in caring and loving people that I could end up not actually loving them from the heart. There's a danger as a Christian to think that it's about external keeping of the law. This priest, his job was to mediate God to man. He instead had forgotten mercy. This this Levite's role who was to serve and worship and help people come into God's presence and encounter the majesty and greatness of God. And, and he was meant to help usher in people in their passionate proclamation of how much they love God. He was failing to love God. He was evidencing through his lack of love that he was dispassionate about God in his daily life. Church, when you hear a parable like this, don't think of it as some distant parable. Put yourself, don't put yourself in the shoes of the Samaritan. I don't think that's the intent of this parable. We're not generally the good Samaritan, okay? That's the, that's, it is a model for us, and that's how, that's what we, we do need to take that away. But, but don't put yourself in the shoes there and assume that you're the good Samaritan. I, I can't put myself in the, in, in the shoes of the good Samaritan. I think where we're meant to, to be challenged is to say, am I like that priest? Am I like that Levite? You know, if you come to Jesus self-confident and self-righteous, you might be able to fool yourself. You might be able to try to justify yourself, but you may be missing seeing Jesus as the wonderful, compassionate Savior who came to enable you to love people. 
If your focus becomes on theological or religious purity or precision alone or on mere externalities, you're gonna lose sight of the love of God that you once knew. That's how I think the parable's meant to affect us. Church, we, we, let us not have our religion be mere outward exercise of duty. Let's not, let's not fail to be affected by the compassion and loving kindness of God. Don't grow familiar with the, the wonder of knowing God and relating to him and coming into his presence, of coming to him in worship. Let's not forget how wonderful and gracious and merciful God is that he would extend his mercy to us, that we would even get to relate to him, that we would become his people. Let's not be dulled by outward practice and fail to have our hearts affected by his love for us. Let's not allow adherence to forms of religion keep us from loving God and our neighbor. Amen? Well, there's a second lesson here for us. It's not just the lesson of the teacher of the law. It's not just the lesson of the priest and the Levite. That's the the grouping in this parable. There's three groupings and and thereby kind of three lessons we can see from this parable. And the first one is that mere religion or your religion can get in the way of loving God if you're not careful. The second lesson that we see from this parable, it's not often emphasized, is is that even my enemy is my neighbor. Even my enemy is my neighbor. Well, where do I get that from? When Jesus throws these hearers a second curveball, not just the curveball of the priests and the Levites, but he throws them another curveball. See, it would have been really popular back then to kind of mock priests and say, well, yeah, here's this priest, somebody, a great example, and yeah, he failed to be an example. Here's this Levite, supposed to be this great example, but they failed to be an example. But you know who the hero is? The hero is the common man. And that would have been really popular back then. Actually, I think it's really popular today, right? It's really popular to say, well, you know, all these people who are so-called lead us, they aren't heroes. The true hero is the, is the common man. And, and that's kind of true, but Jesus throws everybody in the room, everybody on the side of the hill, really, and he throws them all a curveball. They would have expected the priest and the Levite to, to fail. They would say, okay, the priest and Levite to fail. Okay, that's a little bit of a twist. Thanks, Jesus. But now here comes the common man. I know that's going to be the hero of the story. And, and then Jesus, you know, maybe they felt a little sub, smug, a little self-satisfied about it. But what they wouldn't have expected was the ancient equivalent of, or maybe modern-day equivalent of somebody who's a member of Al-Qaeda becoming the hero in the story. That's the effect it would have had. You know, somebody who's a leader of ISIS is the hero in the story. That's the essential message that Jesus is getting across is that even our enemies can be our neighbor. That's hard to deal with. That's a little shocking. That's a little difficult. It makes it a little uncomfortable. It would have made them really uncomfortable a Samaritan comes along and he doesn't cross the other side of the road. This, this hated people, these godless people, the Samaritans who got the worship of God wrong, they were half-breeds, they would have openly called them that. They actually would have had, the priests would have taught them to pray prayers that, Lord, just don't let the Samaritans enter into eternal life. They, they, they liken Samaritans to pigs in their literature in that day. 
There was this, this hatred that had been brewing for like 550 years. The Assyrians, when they took over Israel, they took most of Israel into captivity. And then they, they took all of their enemies and they seeded them back into the area of Samaria so that intentionally it would defy all the people and they would intermarry and they brought in all kinds of idolatry and false religion. And that's what they were known for in Samaria was idolatry. And they were a, a mixed breed, mixed races. And the Israelites would have hated them because, of course, God calls us to be pure. But they missed it was about purity of the heart. They got it all wrong. Those foreigners, those hated people that they had built up resentment and bitterness for 550 years, even though they're only a few miles apart, they weren't supposed to mix. And Jesus says, that's the one who comes along. It's a Samaritan. The priest didn't love God. The Levite didn't love God. The Samaritan. The enemy, the mixed breed, the, the guy who is raised in a culture with the wrong religion, they, they end up loving God. Now, that's not endorsing that there's all roads lead to God or some nonsense that different religions lead to God. That's not the point that Jesus is making. He's making the point that even our enemy can become our neighbor. You know, maybe it's tough for you to relate to because, you know, Samaritans are far from us and you think, how awful, how could they be so backwards? How could they believe that, how could they talk about people being half-breeds and call them pigs in derogatory terms? How could they do that? How could they treat people so badly? You know, we're enlightened now, we're very different, right? But then, how do you think about Muslims, how do you think about illegal immigrants? How do you feel about some other group there, stereotypical racism or disdain for in this country? Is there any group in your hearts of people that you struggle to love because you feel like they deserve the reputation? That's a Samaritan. You know, it's, it's easy for us to go on a mission trip, relatively so. It's costly, and, the, and, and yes, there's some sacrifice involved, but it's relatively easy for us to go to another country and to mingle with people of a different ethnicity and, and even carry out the mission of preaching the gospel. But where it's challenging for us is to love our neighbors who are not so far from us, like the Samaritans were about 12 miles away. They had different culture and different experiences and background. And that's where it's hard for us is to, to relate to, to love people who are very different than us but right beside us. Maybe they're in our church. The Jews had no dealing with Samaritans. It, when you're hearing this parable, hear it like they heard it. Who do you have no dealing with? That is likely a Samaritan for you. In the parable, though, the Samaritan, he sees this man lying there. And instead of going away, he says he is moved with compassion. He experiences a, a gut feeling. That's the literal word there. It's a, it's a gut movement towards this guy. He experiences compassion towards this man. And in so doing, he reveals that he understands the compassion of the Lord because he's able to show compassion. And so he he doesn't try to find out the pedigree of the person laying there. He doesn't go and say, hmm, I wonder if this guy believes like me. 
I wonder what his background is. I wonder what his nationality is. Or I wonder what the citizenship status of this guy might be, whether I should help him or not. I don't want to encourage his illegal behavior by caring for him. And so when Jesus tells this portion of the story, the whole premise of the lawyer's question, who is my neighbor? It's blown away. It's blown away. You see, in the Old Testament, there would have been an understanding that the neighbor is somebody who is within the covenant household of God or otherwise an Israelite or somebody who wanted to become an Israelite. And what Jesus is saying is, no, you misunderstand that I came, I came so that the nations might know God. I came that every tribe and tongue and nation and people from every ethnicity and background and culture and socioeconomic status so that everyone would come to me and experience my love. And so the Samaritan keeps the Jewish law. He had compassion on this man that his culture had much hatred for. Instead of going away from him like the priest and Levite done, he he did what the so-called pure religious leaders of the Jews should have done. And in doing that, Jesus was drawing attention to the fact that in his new covenant love, even my enemy is my neighbor. That would have shaken them up. I think it's meant to shake us up too. And then not only that, the enemy is the one who ends up showing he loved God. And this third and final lesson that we see that, that Jesus is driving home is that if we love God, or maybe if we say we love God, if we truly love God, if we love God, we will show compassion to those in need. If we love God, we'll show compassion to those in need. Look down at verse 34. It tells us the Samaritan, it says he went to him, and then he, he took the time to personally care for him. It says he, he poured wine on his wounds. It would have been antiseptic back then. It would have poured wine on his wounds, and then he would have put oil on him to soothe his wounds and, and to kind of to seal them up and close them, and he would have put bandages on him. So he actually was applying medical care of the day. He was caring for this man. And then he took the man, and he put him on his own ride, you know, he put him, put him on his own donkey, or maybe in our equivalent, he put him in, in, the, in the front seat of his car, and this, this bloody, dirty man, and he, he puts him there, and he says, here, you can borrow my car. But he puts him instead on his, his ride, and he, he inconveniences himself. He rides while the man walks. The Samaritan ends up walking, being inconvenienced, and putting himself in somewhat of danger as well. He goes the extra mile. He spends expensive things on the man, wine and oil and bandages. He puts him on a, his own animal. He didn't pass the wounded Jew off on somebody else who would have been responsible. You ever tempted to do that? You know, I, as a pastor, I get, I get calls often of, you know, hey, I came across a person. I found out that they were in need, and I just thought the church should know about that. <laughs> and my response in my heart sometimes is, well, okay, that's really good. I do want to care for them. Aren't you the church? Aren't we the church? And how do we respond when we find out a need of somebody is our first response. Hey, let me go find somebody else who can meet this need. Or we say, hey, God, maybe you're, you put this man in my path, so this person in my path, so I could help them with their needs, so I could care for them, so I could love them. But you know what? It's inconvenient. It's not easy. You might even feel like you don't know what to do. I doubt the Samaritan was a doctor. I doubt he was schooled in how to care for the guy. He doesn't say that. You know, you might feel like you're beyond your ability. 
But Jesus' point is he showed the man love. He did everything that he could. Now, sometimes it does look like taking somebody to a shelter and connecting them up saying, here's where you can get care, but let me not disconnect from you. Let me continue to care for you, relate to you, love you. But the Samaritan, he, he doesn't just take him to the local Jewish synagogue. He could have done that. He could have cared for the man. He could have put him on his mule. And then he could have taken him to the Jewish synagogue in Jericho and said, here, guys, this is one of yours. Take care of him. But he doesn't do that. He goes even further. He takes him to an inn and he pays for the guy to stay there. And then it says he gives the guy two denarii. Now, a twelfth of the denarii would have, would have been about a, a night's stay in an inn in that time. And so he's, he's giving 24 nights of, or the equivalent for us today, 24 nights in a hotel stay. Think about that for yourself, putting somebody up in the local Marriott, 100 bucks a night or whatever it is. 24 nights, that's costly. Jesus' hearers would have gotten that. He doesn't drop them off somewhere. He, he, he does what's inconvenient. He does what's difficult. He goes the extra mile. He doesn't take them to the shelter, police, or the church. He goes and personally takes care of them that night. And then he gives two denarii to the innkeeper and says, here, take care of them for the next three, four weeks. But then he says something else. He puts himself at risk financially too. He says to the innkeeper, I'm going to go away. I've got some business to do. But you know what? If this man needs care beyond 24 days because he was so bad off, by the way, and he was half dead, if he needs care beyond that, um, whatever cost he accrues, I'll pay for it. He was offering this unknown. It could be significant. You know, this was back in the days before the Affordable Care Act. This, they didn't have Samaritan's purse, whatever the, the health sharing things are. This, this guy was saying, hey, I'll, I'll take this cost on myself. Whatever his medical bills are, let me know. I'll pay them. That could have been very risky for him. He went above and beyond the minimum. It was all he could do. And then at the end of the parable, Jesus brings it home in a very personal way for the man attested him. And look down your Bibles in verse 36. He says to the man, he says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? What do you think? How do you apply the law? Who do you think is the neighbor here? What he's saying is, are, are you really the neighbor? Do you, are you really wondering who the neighbor is? Are you loving God? And there's no answer that will let the lawyer off the hook, and he knows it. He knows he can't say, well, the priest did the right thing, because he didn't. He knows the Levite, you know, I can't say the Levite did the right thing. But then he, he, I can just imagine him squirming and he, he acknowledges somewhat begrudgingly. He doesn't even admit that the guy's a Samaritan and he kind of says, you know, well, I guess, you know, he says, well, I didn't say I guess, but it, it seems to be implied at least there. Look in verse 37. He says, something interesting here. He says, the one who showed mercy. He doesn't even say the Samaritan. He doesn't say the Samaritan. It was like his prejudice was keeping him from even getting the word Samaritan out connected with anything good. But then Jesus says, you go and act like the Samaritan. You know, Jesus, he had forced the lawyer to admit that the Samaritan was an ideal picture of obedience to God's law. And then he says, if your neighbor is not one like you, if your neighbor is the Samaritan, then you go and you have mercy like this. Remember that your enemy can be your neighbor. Don't let your religion keep you from loving God. 
And instead, love God by loving people as your neighbor. You know, maybe, maybe for us today, you're aware as you're thinking through, okay, who, who is my neighbor? Maybe you're tempted like this man to justify it and say, well, Jesus, who, who really is my neighbor? They're, they're not really my neighbor. They live too far away from me or they're not like me. I don't really encounter people like that. Maybe your neighbor is somebody who's from a different country or somebody has a different skin color. Maybe your neighbor is somebody who has a personality that just grates against yours and, and you find it really annoying and you don't want to be around them. Maybe that's the neighbor that you need to go to. Or somebody who's weird. Which, by the way, we're all weird. If you don't know it, Aaron will help you out with that later. <laughs> you know, maybe your neighbor is a practicing Muslim that you need to go to and show God's love to and think, I want them to know the same compassion and mercy. I want them to be born again and experience the new life that we celebrated in Lily this morning. Or maybe your neighbor is is a hostile atheist and you think I I want them to know the mercy of God or maybe it's somebody else for you that Jesus is calling us to go to with compassion and mercy to, to give them kindness that's inconvenient and sacrificial you know sometimes our neighbors aren't only the people easiest to love and sometimes they might be the hardest person for us to love and we've left one important thing out so far. We've left out the fact that Jesus, he knew the lawyer and none of us today can love God with all our heart, our mind, our soul. And, and he, he knew that we, we can't love the neighbors ourselves. And this parable is not about trying to get us to earn our salvation. That's not the point. It's not trying to say, be righteous on your own and, and earn it. That's not what Jesus is doing. It's meant to point us to our great need for God. It's meant to challenge us that if, if we say we love God, then we really need him to enable us to love other people. If we are to obey God, we have to truly come to Jesus humbly and ask him to be our teacher, to, to have him instruct us for real, to not try to justify ourselves. It's meant to, to show us that we need to be transformed at the core of who we are if we are going to love like this. If we are going to love our neighbor, then we must understand and know and experience the compassion and love and mercy of God. So, you know, what, what would I say if I was going to sum it up? What's the main idea of this whole parable? I, I think it's really that if you, whether you truly love God or not is, is revealed in how you love your neighbor. Whether you truly love God or not is revealed. This is not about how to earn God's love. This is saying to challenge everybody. For Christians, it's a challenge of don't be complacent and think that you love God and act like you love God. Say that you love God, but then your life doesn't meet up with that. Repent. Love your neighbor. For those who aren't Christians or who think they are, but yet are not loving their neighbor, this meant to, to say, do you really love God? If you really love God, it's going to be evidenced. If it's not evidenced, then you have a chance to respond humbly and repent and say, Jesus, save me. I need you. I need your compassion. I need your forgiveness because I can't live like you're calling me to on my own. I can't do it. I can't meet up um, to the moral requirements of your law. God, I need you. Forgive me for not doing this, Lord. Rescue me. 
God, give me a new heart and a desire that wants to show your mercy and compassion to other people. You know, Rousseau and Voltaire and Marx they, and, and John Lennon, they weren't the only people who have trouble living out what they believed. We've got trouble too. It's meant to reveal that we need to be redeemed. We desperately need to be redeemed. We need to, to be recreated with new desire to love God like he's loved us. And then, and then really the, the gospel application of this is that, that Jesus ultimately lived like the Good Samaritan. Jesus is the one who came to a people who were hostile, to, hostile towards him. Jesus came to a people who rejected and despised him, who hated him. Jesus came to you and me when we were hating him. He, he saw us in our pain and our hurt and our desperate need when we were, we were more than half dead, when we were dead in sin, Scripture says. And often it speaks of Jesus being moved with compassion. He didn't walk away from us when we were beaten up and we were bloodied and bruised. He didn't turn away when we were covered in the dirt of our sin and, and all alone. Instead, he crossed the great divide between heaven and earth and he carried our sins. He, he gave of himself ultimately to die in our place, to give us new life so that we might understand the mercy and compassion of God. When we were stripped bare and naked before God, Jesus came and then he was naked and stripped bare. He took the punishment, he took the shame that we deserved. And then he put his own robes of righteousness on us. When we had no way to buy bread, scripture tells us come and and buy bread without price. Come and drink and eat freely as we learned last week because of Jesus' sacrifice. We can be fed, we can be cared for. Jesus didn't leave us alone. We know that he says, I can go and prepare a place for you. He's, he's, he's paid us, paid for us to have a way to be secure, an eternal home. He spared no expense to make sure we're provided for eternally. So when you hear the story of, of the loving Samaritan, let's remember the reason we can go and do likewise is because Jesus has already gone before us and done likewise for us. That's the only way we can do that. Now, we're meant to respond. If, you, if you're not loving, to say, God, forgive me, but Lord, thank you for your mercy. Teach me your mercy that I might show mercy to other people. You know, maybe this morning you need to think for a minute how God's shown us compassion and mercy. Think about how we can show the same compassion and mercy to others. If you're claiming to be a true follower, a disciple of Jesus, as we say that's our mission as a church, to be disciples of Jesus who are growing as disciples and making disciples, then this is a perfect place to start. Ask yourself, who is it that you don't want to love? Who is it that I don't know how to love or I think beneath my love? If you're honest with yourself, you'll answer that. Maybe you've got negative opinions about people that you need to love. Ask yourself, okay, who's God placed around me that needs the compassion of Jesus Christ? Maybe there's people in the church, maybe there's people in your community, people you come across at work or you drive by or somebody standing on the roadside holding a sign, whatever it might be. How can I show love starting here and extending to all of our real social networks? Let's just talk about talking about love on Facebook. 
How do we actually show love? If you've been made alive in Christ, the question for you and I is, who is it that's in need that God's calling me to go and love likewise? And then come to Jesus honestly, asking him to change you. Maybe you don't know Jesus and you say, I want to live this way. We need to be transformed. How are you transformed? By, by coming to him humbly and saying, Jesus, I need you. I can't follow you on my own. I've sinned against you. Please forgive me. God, make me alive. And here's the wonderful news. When you come to Jesus humbly and you admit that you can't do it on your own, and you confess that you've not loved him and your neighbor, he extends merciful forgiveness. And he makes you clean from all of your sins. He washes away our complacency and our self-righteousness. And as we humble ourselves, we confess our pride and our lack of love, he won't just forgive us, he transforms us by his grace so we might understand his love personally and then go and show his love personally. Amen. Well, if I have the band, go ahead and come up. Um, Joe, if you could pick something as an appropriate response, communicating or thanking God for the mercy he's given to us and